I love the Olympics. I don't know that anybody in our church could brag that they love the Olympics more than I do. Um, and there are a variety of reasons why that's so, but all I can tell you is that today that's good news for you because church will end on time so I can get back and watch the rest of the Olympics. Uh, I can tell you some of the genesis of the love, my love for the Olympics is related to that I'm a sports guy and I grew up in an era where we didn't have ESPN. That didn't come into play until I was in late high school. So the notion of a 24-hour sports channel was just not part of my childhood. We had one black and white TV for most of my childhood with four or five channels and a little metal antenna that you'd have to supplement the signal reception with a little tin foil. But every four years, it used to be that the winter and the summer Olympics were all in the same year. Every four years, we would get a 24-hour sports thing for two weeks. It was called the Olympics. And, and as a sports kid, that was just so great. I mean, it was, just a, it was just terrific. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Along the way, I picked up some tidbits of information. We could call this like PRISM's version of HQ Trivia. If you don't know what HQ Trivia is, join the PRISM staff in our addiction to this internet trivia game. We uh, interrupt staff meetings just to go, hold on, it's on. It's a, it's a longer story than we have time for today. But do you know the purpose of the Olympic rings? The, the Olympic rings and the flag itself with a white background is emblematic of five continents of people that participate in the games. Now, you may say there are seven continents. Last we heard, Antarctica doesn't have a team. But uh, <laughs> you'd think with all that snow, the Winter Olympics, they'd clean up. You know, but the cross-country racing, you'd think somebody from Antarctica would jump in. But they have not yet. Uh, the countries represented in these colors, uh, the continents, are Europe, Africa, America, Asia, and Australia. And the, the colors themselves are supposed to, and their interplay, supposed to show the uniting of the world around a common practice of getting together and competing in games. Uh, the colors supposedly represent every flag. So this is a, uh, where they're stretching symbolism to, I think it's logical limit, because it's, they're just the colors of the spectrum. So logically, all of the colors of every flag would be represented because you start mixing colors together. But needless to say, they're pretty excited about their color scheme too. Symbolism is all over the Olympics. And uh, in, in a lot of ways today, as we look at our text in John 2 and continue our study in the Gospel of John, we're going to have quite a look at the symbols associated with what's going on. And... and we have been studying the Gospel of John with the purpose of going this whole year investigating what Jesus is trying to communicate to us, what John as the author of the Gospel of John is trying to assert and what he's doing. And we have along the way heard him say in the first chapter that Jesus is God in the flesh and that the reason for his writing this gospel is that we would know this. We also have heard John proclaim that Jesus has come to shine a light in the darkness and that Jesus' mission is to transform lives through relationship with him. Now we see the overarching purpose of a miracle de designed and shared to communicate and strengthen John's case about the majesty of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, I begin today by citing the 11th verse of chapter 2, which says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The disciples believed because they saw Jesus turn water into wine. The word miracle actually means sign in the original language, which is important because miracles have meanings on multiple levels. And, and this, this particular thought has helped me understand the nature of miracles. Um, we have this tree in our back uh, here at PRISM. It's, uh, I've been assured by our resident horticulturalist, Dale Witt, that this, this is a tangerine, but maybe a midget version. Um, but a tangerine, an orange, it, it's really fascinating when you think about, I think they're beautiful just being orange, hence the PRISM logo is orange. I'm a big orange fan. Providence Christian College, primary color of the Dutch, orange. You got to love orange. Just the orange itself is an attractive thing for me. I always loved when I saw California naval orange trees. There's just something very lively and fun about oranges. People, some will actually eat the orange peel. I think you've got to be seriously hungry to go there. Others that are mixologists use orange to, like, to, to flavor drinks and food. So there's a real purpose to the actual outside portion of an orange. But obviously we know that there's more to it because you peel that layer off and then you get to eat this piece of citrus fruit that contains for you vitamin C and carbohydrates to help you energetically plow through another day. But there's still, yes, even more because most of the time you get yourself a seed. And that seed deep within this is what reproduces so that you can enjoy more fruit in the future. This is the nature of a miracle. There's more to it than what seems to be on the surface. Before we launch into the entirety of this John 2 section, I want to use the first few verses to give you a little bit of context so you can appreciate what's going on. John 2, 1 through 5, it says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana, at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. My, my first obvious uh, point about context would be that even the way I read that should demonstrate to you the imposition of culture onto text sometimes. See, you could read it like we would hear somebody say it if they were being disrespectful, like, Woman? What's this got to do with me? You know, you could read it like that if you wanted to, but that's not what the text is saying. In fact, this is in that culture akin to somebody saying, yes, ma'am. You know, now, again, even in America, in different places, that will go over poorly. Um, where I came from in North Florida, uh, yes, ma'am is what we required of our children. So, you know, when our kids were growing up, was, they, I would say, you come in? They'd say, yes, and I'd go, I'm sorry, is that yes, dad? You know, we, we were not kidding around about respect. Now, I came to California 10 years ago, went to a doctor's office. The woman asked me at the question, one at the desk asked me a question. I said, yes, ma'am. And she goes, don't you ma'am me? I'm like, wow, somebody's sensitive. You know, I was like, I was just trying to be respectful here, and you're like going off on me, friend. Um, uh, needless to say, Jesus was not being disrespectful to his mom, calling her woman. He was, he was actually saying, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? Now, 
you could be confused as well by the first four words of this section on the third day. We have been talking in the previous sermons about how in this section of the Gospel of John, John is actually walking through the first seven days of Jesus' ministry. So we've had like day one, day two, day three, day four, and now all of a sudden they go, and on the third day, and you may get confused, don't be. There was some travel associated, and it's talking about on the third day after the fourth day. It's talking about the third day in the sequence after Nathaniel was called on day four. So I just don't want you to like be confused. Chuck, I thought we were talking about something else. Seven is a significant number, for, and it wouldn't have been lost on the Jewish people. We call it a creation motif. That's in theology they speak of this number uh, that God created the world in seven days, and then on the seventh day he rested. We see this pattern setting out to reaffirm and remind us symbolically that God's involved with this. We know that uh, this creation motif finds its way into the scriptures again and again, and in this particular case, it's even a metaphor for the entirety of the, the trajectory, the arc of the story, if you will, of the gospel from the standpoint that uh, the end of all of Jesus' ministry to us will be this great banquet. Uh, the completion of Jesus' mission and establishing his kingdom uh, on, in heaven as, and, uh, as it is on earth as it is in heaven is that we will one day celebrate the joining together of the church, the bride, with its husband, Jesus, and there will be this great heavenly feast at the conclusion. The seventh day to John's audience would have been significant and would have been something that they saw symbolically involved in this. Nevertheless, in the text, Jesus wants to respect his mom, and even though he thought, you know what, you know, I was planning to launch a couple of days later because of her request, because of their need. Jesus decides it's go time for his first miracle. So for our purposes, we're going to look at what that miracle signifies to us now. And it will touch on two things, the nature of his mission and the superiority of his mission. Let's take a first look at the nature of Jesus' mission as it is seen in this miracle. Verses 6 through 8. Now there were six stone water jars, therefore the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So Jesus has these six jars, and then they're supposedly going to play some role in purification or at least a symbolism of purification one commentator speculates that Jesus would have been the seventh, and you've got this complete picture of Jesus' purification. I don't know that that's necessary. That may be a reach. What we can say is that scholars do refer to chapters 2 through 11 of the Gospel of John as the book of signs. On their surface, the miracles of Jesus are given to demonstrate his divine power, not a reliance on somebody else but to establish that Jesus himself was fully God and could do miracles. He wasn't citing somebody else's power to make that happen. By his own word, Jesus could create miracles. And John is going to use this to prove again that Jesus was God in the flesh. You see Jesus telling them, 
I'm going to do something now that's going to kind of sort of out me to the world. Later in John chapter 10, verses 37 through 38, he once again he validates that these miracles have a purpose. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So he's trying to communicate his divine nature. His first sign, of course, has multiple layers of symbolism and significance. Beyond the surface of saying we're going to validate that Jesus is deity, we see that as we get to the fruit of this, the, the actual nourishment of this, that Jesus is demonstrating his care and concern through the miracle. He is wanting to both honor his mother's request and save this young couple from embarrassment, a social sort of faux pas. So quite practically, what we know is that people see the character of God through his works, and he would see the character, people would see the character of Jesus through the things we would do on his behalf. Mirroring his attitude of service models his care for others. And you see Jesus really doing a behind-the-scenes kind of thing. You know, he, he's, he's correcting kind of a backroom problem. They're, you know, he's in the kitchen, so to speak, going, oh, no, we've run out. And, and so to solve a problem without really receiving any glory at all, Jesus serves very quietly, and you see him doing something wonderful that really saves the day. Jesus says later in John 13, verses 16 and 17, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus is telling us if he can serve in the back room, obscure, uncelebrated for his contributions, so can we. But even further down into this miracle, beyond the surface and the, the nutrients, we see the seed of the gospel the very specifics of the gospel seen in the miracle itself. First, we see sacrifice. Jesus sacrificing his sense of when he was ready to launch his public ministry, his willingness to serve this couple, even though by his account it wasn't yet time for him to take this public step forward, which actually parenthetically begs this question, what, what exactly was Mary thinking he was going to do? It always makes me say, you know, was... How much did she really know? And as Jesus was growing up in the first three decades of his life, how many miracles did he just do around the house for mom? You know? If she just left for the day and said, hey, I want you to clean up. Did he go, okay, I'll take care of that? And I was like, you know, and then he's go back to doing whatever he's doing, you know. Miracle cleanup, you know. I mean, how much did she actually see? And so could she have gone into the wedding at Canaan knowing that he could do something really profound? There's one set of commentators that think that she actually may have been thinking he would just get up and use his status to kind of have the whole thing blow over. You know, like, hey, everybody, we sort of ran out of wine, but let me tell you a few jokes or something to get people to forget about the wine. And, uh, and, uh, but it's clearly he had a purpose, and that purpose was that he would show the gospel to people, Jesus sacrificing so that others could be served. We secondly see a symbolism in the wine. The wine's significance in a celebration is important. Uh, James Boyce points out that running out of wine in our time might not be a big crisis because we could just go down to BevMo and pick up some more if we needed to. 
but there is something going on with wine. There's, it symbolizes joy. And to run out of wine in that culture would have effectively been saying, there's really no more joy left. In some ways, what this is saying is that, that Jesus is the source of joy, that without Jesus, there is no joy. And seeing this is the mission of Jesus. He wants people to see that if you want real joy in life, you need the wine of my presence. You need me to be active in your life. He came not just to solve our problems and meet our needs in an end to themselves. Jesus' initial purpose in coming was not to help provide your best life now. All right? His goal is that you would have relationship with him. He wants to be at your wedding. He wants to sit and drink wine with you. He wants to have fellowship with you. And as a byproduct of his presence in your life, he is willing and able to do the miraculous for the purpose of you seeing who he is, seeing more of who he is, and understanding at greater levels the depths of his love and care for you. His miracles are a means to something, and it's a means to him. He is not the means to your miracle. He's the end. He's what all of this miraculous is supposed to produce. This is the nature of his mission. His mission is to, for you to know and be reconnected to your creator. And anything miraculous done in your life is done to bring you closer to him so that you could see more of him. The Olympics have held a special place in me in part because it was one of those times when my large family would gather around together. It was a really fun time where we would, you know, I have five sisters and, you know, my dad loved the Olympics and he would make sure that he was home from work to watch. And so we were all together in one place oftentimes. There was a fellowship, there was a friendship that took place. When you look at what the Olympic athletes are experiencing at the Olympics, a lot of them will say that the best part was just meeting other athletes. So in the, com- the competition was terrific and if you win, especially it makes you feel good, but there was something valuable just being together. The nature of Jesus' ministry is seen in this miracle in Cana primarily because it's about Jesus being with you. That's what he's, that's what's amazing about it is that he could have been off doing, you know, a miracle crusade somewhere with thousands of people, but instead he made the time to be with his mom and conceivably some of her friends and and hang out at a wedding and honor a young couple who was getting hitched and then help them so that they could avoid public embarrassment. Jesus was concerned about people. In the miracle, we see the nature of his ministry. We also see this, the superiority of his ministry. We see the nature of his mission to restore us to friendship with him. We also see in this the superiority of this. When the master of the feast, it says in verses 9 and 10, tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine till now. Let me unpack this for those of you who might think that the Bible is not earthy enough for you. What he's saying is, when people are drunk enough, they don't care what quality the wine is. 
So usually what would happen is they would, people would drink, and then once they were like a little bit, you know, loose, you bring out the two-buck chuck, and then they don't know the difference between, you know, the chateau, whatever you had that cost $100 a bottle, and the stuff you get at Trader Joe's. So what this wine-tasting guru, the master of the banquet, apparently who's in one of your wine clubs, would know the difference... And, and what he's saying is, uh, hold on a second, I took a sip of this stuff. This is way better than what we had before. You know, he could notice a difference. I mean, he actually, it was significant enough of an improvement where he was saying, you know, instead of bringing out the crud, you guys have brought out, like, the top shelf stuff. What, what is this all about? And, and in this, we see a, a, a symbol of Jesus ushering in a new era of faith that is far superior to anything that had ever been or anything that would ever be. Watching the Olympics this week has awakened me to two related realities, related mostly to communication. One is that technology has made the world a much smaller place. Um, you, you can get real insight into culture and other cultures around the world. It's fascinating in ways that were never possible when I was a youngster. I mean, it's, it's really, really cool. And people can connect with each other across continents immediately, instantly, and that doesn't blow young people away. But for those of us who lived in the era of black and white television, um, this is really mind-blowing. Related to that, though, is that more than ever before, Americans, and certainly Christian Americans, need to use caution when we use phrases like, we're the envy of civilization, or we're the greatest country in the world, people now hear that. And, and we live in not just a pluralistic country, we live in a pluralistic world that requires real, real care in how we communicate. Otherwise, what happens is, is we are perceived as being what communication scholar calls ethnocentric. We, we think our world and our little culture is the best in the world. People just take offense to that. That will prohibit us from doing and being servants to others. You say, Pastor Chuck, thanks for this insight into the geopolitical world. What does this have to do with the miracle at Cana? Um, amidst a pluralistic culture like ours, particularly as it pertains to religion, we have got to, as Christians, be careful not to shrink back from our firm conviction about what Scripture says about Jesus. And, and I don't mean to say that we should ever communicate arrogantly, but there is no other way to say it when you say the superiority of Jesus' ministry is evident in who he is. If John's gospel is true, Jesus isn't another religious system. He is the object of religious worship. He's not the one way amidst a bunch of competing ideas. If Jesus is God in the flesh, if he is the risen Son of God who sits at the right hand of the Father, if he is God incarnate, his ministry is superior. Logically, and this is what I mean by saying we don't want to be arrogant or condescending or ugly, but carefully we can say it is impossible for Jesus to be God, and then there be another way to find God. You're eventually, everything's going to lead you back to Jesus if he's God. 
And you can avoid all those rabbit trails. Jesus is saying, you come to me, you don't have to go through some funky system. Come right to the Savior. Come right to the risen Christ. He is God. Before the arrival of Jesus, religion amongst his people lacked zeal. Following their leaders had become a burden. The masses of Jewish people had lost hope that God would ever prophetically speak into their world again. And substantially, what religion was reduced to, not just in Israel but around the world, is this means of appeasing the wrath of God to get what you want instead of looking at it as connection to our Creator. God had become something you were afraid of and somebody that you were distant from. He was the means to an end and not the end itself. The Jewish people shared with the world's religions a correct sense that they were apart from God and there was no clear way to know who he was or how we could actually be reconnected to him. And this longing for a deeper connection, a real connection, a restoration to God was made more difficult because of the incomplete nature of the Old Covenant. And that's why in the book of Hebrews, we see all over the place, the scripture's telling us that Jesus is superior to the law, superior to the old way. You may recall in the last chapter, John 1, Jesus saying that specifically the Jewish leaders had become blind. The miracle at Cana, the changing of water to wine, contrast the old covenant with the new in terms of its superiority for instance the the law came through moses moses's miracle one of the first ones was seeing water turned into blood this was god doing this miracle so that moses could show that god was on the side of the jews jesus on the other hand the one who brings not the law but grace and truth he himself changes water into the wine of joy the jars were symbols of the old, uh, the old covenant. They were used in ritual cleansing. Like much of the old covenant, they were going through uh, rituals. They were going through practices so that they could foreshadow or tell a picture or symbolically represent what was to come. Jesus would turn that water not into another form of water that would just symbolically cleanse us, but what we practice in our communion celebration every week. Jesus' wine, Jesus' blood would literally cleanse us from all of sin's stains. Jesus was going to usher in a new period where faith was not distant God, uncertainty about our relationship to him, but a close God who would come to you and a cleansing of you so that you could enjoy him. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power, the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. After Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected from the dead, 
he made his way not into a metaphorical temple built by human hands, but into the heavenly of heavenly realms and presented his own blood as a sacrifice symbolized in wine. His blood satisfied the wrath of God so that no one would ever have to, whoever put their trust in him, would be able to rest assured. Jesus himself was appointed then the heir of all things. After he made purification for the sins of his children, he got to sit down at the right hand of the Father. The scriptural declaration that Jesus is superior to the Old Covenant and other religious manifestations for that matter is the height of arrogance if Jesus isn't God in the flesh. But if he is God in the flesh, he alone can make purification for our sins. It would take a holy, perfectly holy person of immense value, certainly value greater than a human life, to atone for the sins of all who would ever believe. Only Jesus could fulfill this mandate. But if he is God in the flesh... That means that he is superior to any other manifestation of what we'd call religion. He's the object of all religious hope. Jesus isn't pointing the way to the Father. He and the Father are one. The superiority of the gospel is not just that Jesus is giving us an alternative moral ethic that helps humanity function in a really high way. What makes Christianity valid is the claim that God entered into human history in the person of Jesus so that we might see the radiance of his glory. Jesus is God. And he demonstrates it, not by conjuring up a magic trick that somebody else would do, but by the word of his own power, he changes water into wine. James Boyce says, Apart from him who is the source of life, who is himself the life, religion is a cold and lifeless thing. Apart from the joy he brings, religion is joyless and hardens personalities. In light of what I'm saying about using careful rhetoric, I I want to be as clear as I can with our church from Scripture that if Jesus isn't really God, then this Christian thing is a myth. If Jesus really didn't rise from the dead, Christianity is null and void. It is abs- and, the, and the New Testament says as much. There isn't a gray area or room for conversation about this. If he isn't God, why are we singing songs to him and worshiping him? There's a, there's a point at which the person of Christ, it forces you to make a choice. If Jesus didn't really resurrect from the dead, then Christianity is no different than any other religion that might just be speculating about whether or not God is real and certainly would give us no insight for certain into any of the character or the attributes of God. We would be in agreement, at least I would be, with skeptics who compare Christianity to mythology, akin to the story behind the Olympic flame. Are you familiar with this one? Uh, the Olympic flame is a symbol of the Olympic Games. It, uh, the, the, the flame commemorates the theft of fire from the Greek god Zeus by Prometheus. And in the ancient Olympics, this fire was kept burning as a celebration. Now, we do it because it's fun and 
We, we watch people march and run around for the months ahead of time, and they take the Olympic flame through cities. But pretty much everybody knows, even Greeks, this is a myth. We've all agreed with that. If Jesus isn't God, Christianity is akin to that. And we're just as foolish as anybody who'd be meeting today to worship Zeus or actually taking the eternal flame thing seriously. The purpose of the miracles that Jesus was doing was to establish that he alone was worthy of worship because he alone is God. And if this isn't understood by believers in this age, it is going to be unlikely that they'll be able to withstand the intense cultural heat pushing them to conform to its standards and beliefs. If you don't know that you know that you know that Jesus is more than just another prophet pointing the way to God, but instead is the way because he is God, it will not make any sense to you why you should stand in the face of persecution, why you should stand and, and proclaim Christ as the means of salvation and potentially not because of any way you've delivered it, but the nature of the message offend somebody. You won't be willing to stand out. You won't be willing to be persecuted like first and second century Christians were, let alone those who've done so throughout the ages. Jesus and his call to you to be faithful won't make any sense if you don't know he's God. Additionally, you won't be able to conceive of the fact that he could do a miracle. And if you don't see him as God, you likely won't be somebody who will go to him and ask him to do such a thing in your life. Jesus' miracle at the wedding in Cana should itself remind us that the living Christ does the miraculous. He still does the miraculous. We are commanded, even if you're a Presbyterian, to pray for healing in James 5. And the entirety of the gospel is the notion that God has miraculously broken into human affairs. He still does this, but he does it for a purpose. And in his miracles, we see the nature of his care for people. We see the nature of his mission to us, that he wants relationship with us. There are, there's a symbolism to it that not only meets our need, but says there's something deeper, draws us into deeper fellowship with him. That's why you have difficulties in your life. It isn't just so God can fix your problems, but that you can see that he loves you and be drawn into deeper relationship with him as he fixes your problems. The goal is, the end goal, the end of this is you and him knowing each other and you knowing joy in Jesus' presence, the joy like the wine of a wedding feast. This is what Jesus is calling you and I to. And that is why it is a superior means of knowing God because Jesus is God. Today, that is who we worship. The son of the living God who lives and reigns and can very easily break into your world, not just to fix your problems, but that you might know that he loves you. So let's pray to that in this morning.